Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. As our friends are coming back online, I'm going to tell you, if you go and listen to that whole album, the second song is this gorgeous and wonderful follow-up to that first song. So if you, if you like that song and you like how we talk about it today, I encourage you to grab the album. Just keep on going because that next one, I think, we won't, we won't do it as part of this. I may come back to that, to that second song at some point. But anyway, we hope our online folks are here, and uh, let's dive into this song a little bit. But I don't want to start in Birmingham or in England or in this song. I want to start with where a lot of us were for the past week. Walk up and down that hill at fair regularly, walk through what passes for a midway. I mean, we don't have any rides, but there's that stretch at the top of the fairgrounds where they have tents lined up, and there's funnel cake over here, and the Coast Guard is over here, and, you know, Carroll Community's got a tent set up, and you kind of walk, and all the kids hang out there because they all give out free stuff, and all that free stuff ends up in the barn, which annoys me to no end, but that's neither here nor there. And in the middle of this cacophony of things going on, both tasty and annoying, there's always this little tent up there, and it's often occupied by a single elderly man, and he seeks to share a salvation message with anyone who will hear. You may remember, if if you've seen this gentleman, back in the day it used to be a yardstick that he would give out, and I'm like, that's really a bad idea with a bunch of little kids. He's since moved to wristbands, which I think is a far more effective use of his time, but nevertheless. And he'll reach out and he'll say to you, you say, hey, can I share some good news with you? What's funny is that, what is that good news? Kids that I hang out with are always like, why don't you go in and talk to him? You're a pastor, like, let's see what happens. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. That man's trying to do a job, and generally at fair, I'm trying to do a job as well. As much as I enjoy that kind of conversation, I say no. But every time I walk past him, and he says to me, hey, can I share a word of good news with you? I always wonder, well, what is good news? He's offering salvation. What does it mean to be saved? I don't criticize him because he's at least got an answer. And he's sitting there because he cares about the salvation of others. Even if we have vastly different ways of understanding that. It's a man who's sitting there who's saying, hey, if I have a good word, why wouldn't I share that good word with somebody else? So my question for you is to have that same heart. What does it mean to be saved? What are we saved from? And what are we saved to? What do we mean when we say that? We too should seek to bring a message of God's love and light to a person, to someone, to a friend. Because the gospel message, for whatever it is, is always personal. It's always about you and me. Yes, it's global, but the global realities start in your heart and in mine. This gentleman in the tent seeks to give someone a moment of transformation, a moment where they know there is no going back, where they hear God's love and say, I'm ready to walk in that love. I too have sought that moment and I too have offered that moment to others. And everywhere the church gathers and still says, well, what is salvation and what does that mean to me? Last week, Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan showed us what the fakes are when it comes to salvation. By using the words of Isaiah, stripped right out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 21. 
And they took us to a place that we talked about last week called Babylon. Yes, Babylon used to be a geographic and political reality. But in the scriptures, from the beginning of scriptures to the end, it is more than a geographic place. It is an idea. It is a principle. It is all that which is opposed to the kingdom of God. It is defined by idolatry and injustice. And we see it in every empire across the world. And Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan sought to expose the powers of the world and their utter futility. And so they offered us an invitation to us jokers and thieves, we said last week. There must be some kind of way out of here. We all want out of Babylon, right? We're all seeking salvation. We want out of this. But to leave Babylon as a principle is too big, too global. No, no, no. To leave Babylon, it must be something personal, something I can live, something that is a way of life for me. And so what Jimi Hendrix described in the global, Tom Smith, the lead singer of The Editors, who has one of the most unique lead voices for my money ever, Tom Smith sings in the personal. Today's song begins innocently enough. It opens like an invitation, yes? Pull the blindfold down. Sounds like a children's game. My first thought when I heard this, ah, the pinata, you know? The pinata at your birthday, which, you know, I never had, and they never let me get a good swing on it, probably because they knew I was a ball player. But, you know, the pull the, you hit the pinata, and then you pull the blindfold down. Why would you pull the blindfold down? So you can see, so you can grab all the candy, right? And I was blessed with these long arms. Just scoop it up, all right? I get it all. Pull the blindfold down sounds good. But no, he sings, so your eyes can't see. It's an invitation to pull a blindfold over your eyes. See, Babylon seeks not to give clarity, but rather to confuse, to obscure. Now run as fast as you can. Perhaps this is rather, this is an exercise of trust. Maybe we're too cynical. Maybe we should trust this person. Pull the blindfold down. Maybe this is faith. Pull it down and then run as fast as you can. You're going to be all right. Not so much. Through this field... So we kind of have the, all right, I'm just going to run through a field. It's going to be great. No, maybe this is freedom. Nah, run through a field of trees. That is anything but freedom. And it's in this moment when we're told to pull our blindfolds down, to obscure ourselves, to run through a field that is dangerous for us, we realize we've been set up. Field of trees is, so way, is such a weird way to say it, but that is the point. Babylon has led us to a point we presumed on Babylon's trust, but what we discover is that Babylon is a minefield. This is the bait and switch, the unfulfilled promise of Babylon, the sinister confusion of the ways of the world. Obscure your eyes and run recklessly. What do you think is going to happen? And the editors think about this, and they put this emotion musically. As soon as it says, run through this field of trees, there is this this post-punk shred of the guitar. It roars. The primal scream of the human heart. That this is not the way it ought to be. And they continue on, saying, once you've blinded yourselves, once we fail to know ourselves, we fail to know others. Say goodbye to everyone you have ever known. You are not going to see them ever again. Why? Because the blindfold is pulled over your eyes. And what Babylon encourages us to do is not look at us as community, as partners. Babylon encourages us, no, to see one another as as a means to an end, as somebody to be used or somebody to be partnered with to get us where we want. Babylon always and everywhere obscures us to ourselves and to others. Yet even in this darkness, 
Even in this Babylon, this pervasive, overwhelming, reckless running through a field of trees, there's this nagging feeling. I can't shake this feeling I've got. My dirty hands, have I been in the wars? I wonder about this sometimes. If the brokenness of the world is universal, it seems so it is the idea that the brokenness, it nevertheless seems that brokenness isn't the truest thing about us. Why is it, friends, that even as we see a broken world, we still kind of hold on to this notion of hope? We insist on hope. Even with it all over my hands, even with our mouths forced shut so that we can't sing, nevertheless, I still feel in myself, and maybe you feel in yourself, this idea that maybe there's a different way. There's this nagging feeling. And all it takes is for something to unlock that. We have this nagging feeling inside of us that Babylon is not the be-all, end-all. There is something different. And all it takes is this moment, an aha moment, a realization that cracks open our souls and exposes us for who we are, which is something other than what Babylon says. For Nehemiah, it was the reading of the scriptures. The people are trying to rebuild a city, and Ezra gets up, and they rediscover the scroll, and they unroll the scroll And it says that the people wept as they heard the word of God read again. For Tom Smith and the editors, it was an image. One is not necessarily better than the others. God will speak to us in many ways. And it was this image. The saddest thing I've ever seen was smokers outside the hospital doors. Now, I'm not here to pick on smokers. That's not what I'm doing. But we understand this irony. Yes, you can get the image. Folks, a destructive thing outside a place that is supposed to give us health. And it was in this moment that the editors have come to this realization. What are we doing? What is this? What kind of absurdity are we living in the world? And that is when prayer starts to pour out. Someone turn me around. Can I start this again? Is it possible to do otherwise, to live otherwise, to be something else other than this? Is it possible to start again? And I don't care if you're the little man sitting in the tent at the top of the fair or you're here at St. Mary's on a Sunday morning or you're at St. Peter's in Rome or you're at the beach or you're on a mountain or you're just driving to work, whatever. The question still remains in every human heart. Can I start this again? Babylon, the brokenness, the idolatry and injustice that steers us away from God's will, it's all in me. It's deeply personal. Can I start again? Is it possible to be new? Someone turn me around. As we know, we need help. We cannot do it on our own. It is that cry that that man at the top of the hill is trying to answer. So I want to invite you into my tent for a second. Come into this tent and let me share a word of good news with you. Because at the opening act of the Bible, I shouldn't say the opening act, the confirmands would correct me on that. The second act of the Bible, the first act is God makes it all and pronounces it good. The second act is the fall of Adam and Eve and the breaking of humanity in Eden. And as the Bible opens with this, that the world is not as it should be, the world is not as it was created to be, so the gospel also begins with the brokenness of the world, which Paul develops in a new context. Paul is trying to understand how all these Israelite stories impact the story of Jesus, and he is ruminating on this, and he's saying, wait a second, yes, what happened in Eden still impacts us. 
Tom Smith channels the broad universal themes of the book of Romans, and that's where we get to Romans chapter 5, which is Paul reflecting on sinfulness. Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin came into the world through one man. And death came through sin, and death spread to all because all have sinned. Paul says that nagging feeling of things are not as they should be. Yes, that is theological. God has put that there to remind us that all have sinned. And this is what Tom Smith sings, this beautiful, beautiful prayer stuck at the very core of this song. We've all been changed from what we were, our broken hearts smashed on the floor. We've all been changed. We are not what we were created to be. We're broken, and so many of us feel smashed and busted. I feel this in myself so often, that my own life feels like I'm running blindfolded through a field of trees, both all heroic and hopeful and inevitably tragic, like you're going to break your nose doing that. And that's what Paul is saying. He says in Romans chapter 3, all, both Jews and Greeks, this is not about religion or, or heritage, All of us are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. Later on, he says, bluntly, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the human condition. This is Babylon in every one of us. In Adam, in that original sin, our broken hearts have been left smashed on the floor. And this is is the editor's and the Bible's great confession. All have sinned. This is who we are. But confession leads us to ask more questions. That nagging feeling of hope will not leave. Maybe there still is something deeper than my circumstances, deeper than my emotions, deeper than my screw-ups. Maybe there's something even deeper than me. You wonder that. Maybe we can't articulate it. The editors don't. But it is hope that drives them to ask, I can't believe you if I can't hear you. They believe there's something to be heard. And into our brokenness and into our despair, there yet remains this whisper, a whisper of hope. And it must be heard. We can't just absorb it. We've got to listen for it. And and by listening, I don't just mean hearing it from a preacher or from a friend. No, we have to hear it. We have to touch it. We have to feel that. And Paul says, <laughs> Paul says with a smile on his face and a glimmer in his eye, he says, how then can they call on the one in whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And Paul says, there is good news. And beautiful are the people who share that good news. There is good news. There is hope. There is salvation. Back to Romans chapter 5. If the many died through the one man's trespass, if all of us are sinful because Adam and Eve sinned and they've passed it down to all of us, much more surely has the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. For all the sin of Adam, there is all the grace of Christ. If by that first Adam we have sinned, it is by a second Adam that we have been made new. And this, I'm going to encapsulate really quickly in verses 18 through 21 what Paul is trying to say. And he does this very obviously. And he's, he's saying, if this, then this. Adam brought condemnation, but Christ brings life. 
Adam made us sinners, but Christ makes us righteous. Adam brought sin that reigns in death, and in Christ, grace reigns, which leads to life. We have this original Adam who has broken it all, and we have the new Adam who is making it all new again. And our prayers turn from the singular downtrodden, we've all been changed, we're all broken, to the angelic chorus of the editors, we've all been changed from what we were, our broken hearts smashed on the floor. And this is the moment in the song that I start to weep, I started sitting here right now, that original prayer, we've all been changed from what we were, we're broken and we're smashed. But then did you hear it in the song? Now it's a choir. We've all been changed from what we were. Our broken hearts smashed on the floor. Our broken hearts are smashed. They're done. They're gone. Why? Because we are a new creation. A chorus of praise and celebration. The exact same words, the exact same me, the exact same world, and yet completely new. What was broken in the first Adam in shame and despair is now broken the power of that is broken, which leads us to freedom and joy. The power of Babylon snapped in half in our lives. The broken stuff is smashed, y'all. The old world, the old, the sinful world, the old you, the sinful you is smashed. It is gone, and in its place is a new creation. And this new creation sings underneath all of the brokenness. It sings underneath everything. This new creation sings in heaven even as we sit here which, and we'll join that song in communion as we sing holy, 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 God of love and majesty. The whole universe speaks of your glory, O God most high. The goodness of Jesus is sung here on earth in the body of Christ. We who are grace and freedom and joy and love, we come together in holy worship for the church. We are, while the world spins around us, nevertheless we sing and say there is something new and different. We are a new creation under here and we sing that underneath Babylon. It is sung in creation in the dignified decay of autumn harvest and the blessed renewal of springtime. Nevertheless, this song is sung. And friends, it is being sung inside of you as we speak. You are a new creation. Jesus has already made you new as you sit here now. All that is left for us is to grow into that newness. And now our prayers are, can be the same as the psalmist. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And I'm sure Paul was thinking that when he goes, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So if I were to set up a tent at fair, nobody, hey, trust me, ain't nobody going to ask me to do this. But if I did, it wouldn't be to say, come on in. Let me tell you how messed up your life is. <laughs> None of us need a reminder of that. Sometimes we tell ourselves certain things so we don't have to face it. But none of us need reminded of how dirty our hands are, how messed up we seem to be, how let down we are by our dreams. None of us need reminded of this. Now, if I set up a tent, I'd just be like, come on in here, and let me tell you that you are brand new just as you sit here today. You're absolutely brand new. I don't need you to pray a prayer. I don't need you to do a thing. I just want to let you know God has already got you. Just go and just dig deep and find out what that is. But it's there. It's there. Because God is, the angels are singing underneath of all of your brokenness right now. And there will always be people, sometimes it'll be us, 
who still mourn our smashed and broken hearts. But friends, our job, is, our job as believers, our job as the church, our job as the redeemed body of Christ spread throughout the world is to keep singing under and over people. We've all been changed from what we were. And as long as we keep singing with passion and with creativity and with joy, slowly and surely others will move from the death throes of the old Adam, the death throes of idolatry and injustice in our systems of the world. They will move from all of that into the kingdom of God and the newness and the grace and the love and the joy that we have been promised through the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. We will become a new creation and God will see to it that it is all redeemed. This is a song of salvation. Our broken hearts smashed on the floor. Amen. Hello, St. Mary's. It is good to be back in this space, and I hope that you've enjoyed the first two weeks of my favorite uh, summer sermon series that we call Turntable Gospel. Um, we got to do Jimi Hendrix and the editors, and so far I have loved what I have learned in the journey that I've been on as we've put all these songs together. One of the things I wanted to do in the sermon series, I don't really have an opportunity on Sunday morning to do it, is that I wanted to take these songs and then link them to some ancient Christian documents or practices. I wanted a little ancient and a little modern, and in that to explore how we live this ancient faith and this ancient story in our modern world. And so over the next four weeks in this space, I want to do that. I want to try to connect you with some things. And so I hope that you'll engage me in, uh, in perhaps a, pra a new practice or reading something new. I hope maybe it, it gets your imagination going for some of the ancient things in our faith, which still have so much relevance for us today. And so this past Sunday, as we said, we did uh, Smokers Outside the Hospital Doors by the editors. And we talked a little bit more about Babylon, this principle found in Scripture that says that Babylon is an idea that obscures us to God, it obscures us to ourselves, and obscures us to one another. It is the powers and principalities of this world. Babylon always lies. It causes us to worship that which should not be worshipped. And when we worship the wrong thing, what we discover is that we treat each other in the wrong ways. And so the hallmarks of Babylon are idolatry and injustice. But as powerful as Babylon is, even in our modern world, it never quite obscures this sense deep inside us all that there is something more than Babylon. That sense of something inside of us, this, this nagging feeling that we have, we call it the divine, we might call it the kingdom of God. And where Babylon always seeks to obscure, the kingdom of God always seeks to give clarity. If we extend out the idea of Babylon a, bit, a, a little bit, perhaps we link it to the idea of Satan or the Satan. Well, Satan is always called the deceiver, but Christ is called the way, the truth, and the life. The kingdom is a deeper truth. And yesterday we talked about a deeper and a different story. That yes, in the original Adam, in Adam and Eve and Eden, yes, all have sinned. That is Babylon. But in Christ, the second Adam... All are made alive. In Christ, all are made new. It is a new creation. It looks like the exact same me. It looks like the exact same world. And yet, everything is made brand new. And that is the story of the gospel unfolding today in your life and in mine. That God is doing away with Babylon. God is doing away with obscurity. God is doing away with the lies and bringing us clarity and truth and purpose. 
So our Christian practices must be exercises in clarity and truth-telling. And when we do that, the gospel says, we are set free. The truth will make you free. And we must be thoughtful in our spiritual practices that they do indeed move us towards clarity, truth, love, joy. Because Babylon will still ask us to do many things and will call them God. But not everything we call God is actually God. No, this is why we follow Christ. Because Christ will lead us into all truth if we are diligent in seeking. And so into this idea of clarity, I want to introduce you to a simple prayer. It is called the Jesus Prayer. The Jesus Prayer is a very simple prayer. It goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all it is. It's a prayer that came into use during the first few centuries of the faith, and it finds its roots in a couple of different places, but mostly in desert monasticism in the 400-500s AD. But it has deeper roots in the story in the Gospels, in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Very quickly, this Jesus tells this story that the Pharisee, in very Babylonian style, walks into the temple, walks right up to the altar and says, Thank God I am not like other people. He can't see his own humanity. He's obscured. This is Babylon. But the tax collector, one of the people that we might call the jokers or thieves of this world, stands in the very back of the temple and he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asks the question, which one do you think went home justified? And it's that prayer, God, have mercy on me, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, that becomes over time the Jesus prayer. You see, this very simple prayer seeks to tell the truth about ourselves. And it's a truth that we talked about yesterday. As the editor sang, someone turn me around. Can I start this again? We all feel this. Nobody has to convince us of our own sinfulness. But early Christians also understood that to tell the truth, we have to tell the truth about ourselves, but we also need to tell the truth about God. And early Christians understood and reverenced the name of Jesus. And so they wanted to use this prayer, but to say far more specific things about our Savior. And so this prayer has two parts. The first part, it tells the truth about Jesus, and the second part tells the truth about ourselves. So at the beginning, what is it that we confess? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Lord, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ruler of all things. He is the ruler of the universe. Jesus, we are reminded that he is the word made flesh. He is God made incarnate to walk amongst us. We call him the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is capable of saving. And finally, we name him the Son of God. Of course, we are all children of God, but there is a deep and unique relationship between God and Christ. And in this way, we confess Jesus, our King and our Savior. And on the backside of this, we confess ourselves that we are in need of God's mercy and that we are sinners. When you take these two things and you put them next to each other, we realize that this is the whole gospel in a single prayer. But in the spirit of the editors, and this is why I want to link this prayer to this song. Yesterday, as we were talking about the editors, we saw that at the heart of that song is this prayer, we've all been changed from what we were, our broken hearts smashed on the floor. And we heard that as a prayer of confession, that none of us are who we are because, because we're sinners. We're not who we were made to be because of sin. But that those exact same words shift into that angelic chorus where we can say with joy, we've all been changed from what we were. Yes, we were sinners, but now we are saved by grace. And in that way, these exact same words move us from despair to hope, 
always telling the truth. The Jesus prayer works in exactly the same way. Because, yes, these words are, of course, a cry of dereliction. We know we need God's mercy. We cannot live with God's help. We know Jesus is great, and we are sinners. We know all of that. And it is a cry of confession. But the more you pray these prayers, this prayer, the more they move from your head into your heart, the more you begin to realize that they are an expression of deep personal love. Paul gives us a glimpse of this as he writes his first letter to Timothy. In the very first chapter of 1 Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, says Paul. Paul says, I am the worst sinner, and Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like me. And Paul's saying the whole movement of God's love is directed towards me, not just towards people. God's love is directed towards me because I am a sinner. Do you hear that? The whole movement of God's love is directed towards me because I am a sinner. I am the full and total object of God's love and God's mission. In other words, Jesus would have died if I were the only sinner in the world because God loves me that much. And Paul goes on to say that in me, Paul says, Christ displays his utmost patience and makes me an example to all. When we experience God's grace and mercy, we become walking examples of God's love. And if you think about it in that way, this Jesus prayer moves from Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, to Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It moves from sinfulness to love. And that is the glory and the beauty of this prayer and why it has lived for 14, 1500 years in the hearts of Christians everywhere. So how can you use this prayer? It's a wonderful prayer to use wherever rhythm and regularity are at work. One of my favorite places to pray is when I'm hiking. I can pray it hundreds of times while I, while I, when I link it up to my footsteps. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's just a wonderful prayer to work, and I can pray it with my feet as well as with my mouth. But there are plenty of, plenty of ways that you, I imagine you don't hike every day. There are plenty of ways that you can do it. Another way that I like to use it is when I'm on a commute. One of the things that I often do is when I'm driving, every time I see a church, any kind of church, whenever I see a church, I stop. And as I'm driving, just say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can also use it as part of a regular prayer liturgy. You could pray it as part of your meals. You know, just anywhere that there is rhythm, this prayer lends itself to praying because it's so short, so compact, and yet it is so full. And as we pray it over time, that's when it moves from the head to the heart and it moves from prayer of confession to prayer of joy and celebration. Another way to do it is if you have prayer beads. It's perfect to use on prayer beads. Again, because it's so short, you can get through a lot of beads and not a lot of time. These are some very simple ideas. Maybe you could try them out. Maybe you have more. If so, leave a comment. I'd love to hear what you have to say. But this prayer speaks to us in, it speaks to us in hushed contemplative tones, but powerful tones, that God loves me and God is redeeming me. To put it in the words we used yesterday, we are all experiencing salvation. We have all been saved. We were saved at the cross. We are being saved today, and we will be saved into eternity. Why? Because of God's love. Have mercy on me, a sinner, God. And so let that sink into your souls that we might live more fully into that. 
And as we be, as God shows his utmost patience to us, may we also become living examples to others. Let us share that good news with others. We'll see you next week for Turntable Gospel Round 3. And until then, peace and good, y'all.